This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This episode was sponsored by Girls Can Crate, a subscription box inspiring girls to believe that they can be and do anything. Real women make the best heroes, and every month they deliver them to your front door. And by Mari B. Hedgecoff, Heather McKinnon, Ellen Gross, Jill Harrigan, Chantel Oliver, Jamie Lang, Monique Harris-Pixado, Abigail Gross, I'm Not Your Llama, and Diana Grigorescu. Thank you so much for supporting the podcast. We couldn't do it without you. Hi, Olivia. Hi, Katie. Question for you to begin with. Hmm. What does courage look like? Ooh. <laughs> it looks like being yourself. Doing the thing that is right, even when it's hard. But also when it's not hard. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> but also it can look like bearing up under the impossible thing mm. and getting through even just by the skin of your teeth. Ah, predictable. It's a very me answer, right? Yeah, that's it. Yes, it is. But they're also very female answers. <laughs> yep. I imagine if we asked a man to answer what is courage, what does it look like? <laughs> um, he'd have very different answers. Mm. So many different ways to define courage. You know what? Your answers and my answers are different. Huh. And that's classic, right? I mean, we, we're sisters, but we have really different personalities. Hmm. And we have really different approaches to courage. And the woman yeah. I'm going to tell you about today... Well, wait, what are your answers? Oh, well... I really have a admiration of quiet courage. Ah. I mean, I do admire the bold, brave, you know, stand at Thermopylae and daring things like that. But I really admire where nobody sees it but you. Mm. you know, where you've got this internal struggle or an internal challenge and you meet it alone and you earn your own respect. Nobody else sees it. Oh, that's the kind of courage... I really admire. Hmm. And the woman I'm going to tell you about today, her name is May Alcott. Ah! <laughs> she has a very famous sister, oh. <laughs> Louisa May Alcott, the author of Little Women. Hmm. Yes, and so she's a bit overshadowed by her sister. But you know what? Come to think of it, this story is really about these two sisters. Hmm. And I guess... It's just occurring to me now that they're really similar to us. I see mm. in these two sisters, you and me. Mm. <laughs> yes. Ooh, I hope I like her. Yeah. This You're gonna is like, dangerous. You're going to like who you are. Don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> okay. You're Louisa May. Oh, yay. I was going to say, I better be Joe. Her kind of courage is bearing up under the heavy burden of life and doing the right thing. Um, mm. And May Alcott, she has a kind of quiet courage. She sets herself lofty goals and then dares to pursue them. But more than that, she dares to fail over and over and over again in pursuit of those goals. Mm. And most people 
don't really know her story because her home life is so famous, made famous in the book Little Women. But mm. her life beyond childhood is so beautiful and so fascinating. Yes. She was an artist, aspiring to be a great artist. Mm. And she worked so hard at it. Mm. But even when it maybe seemed like life was telling her to give up and, you know, settle in for a mediocre life, she wouldn't quit. She never gave up. She wasn't afraid to fail. Mm. And the tale is as heartwarming as Little Women itself. <gasps> oh. So we get a little respite from 2020. Okay. With this very wholesome tale today. The story of May Alcott. I'm Katie Nelson. And I'm Olivia Mickle. And this is What's-Her-Name? Fascinating women you've never heard of. I recently returned from Cape Ann, Ooh. the coast of Massachusetts. Oh, lived there for a year, and I have to go back every now and then just to get a dose. <sighs> and while I was there this time, I had the good fortune to visit Orchard House. <gasps> oh, my favorite. Also fondly known as the Little Women House, the house where Louisa May Alcott wrote Little Women and where the Little Women were raised. <sighs> and it's among the first, if not the first, historic house designated to a woman. <sighs> and that woman is you, Louisa May Alcott. <sighs> but she's too famous for our purposes, <sighs> of course. Yes. So we are here at Orchard House today to tell you about another woman in the house, a woman who inspires me so much. Oh. May Alcott, the youngest. In the book, she's Amy. <laughs> and I went to Orchard House to learn all about her. I had no idea just how many artifacts they have there that relate to her. Yes, 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 yes. Okay. And I had the delight of speaking with Jan Turnquist, <laughs> the executive director Here, of Orchard House. I think it stopped again. We started outside, out front, <laughs> and it was raining. I had my audio tech, Emily Stoll, with me. <laughs> and it's a very busy road. They never show that in the movies, but it's always been the main road. Hmm. And outside, there's a garden. The thing that's fun to know, as we approach the side entrance here at Orchard House, you see this new Little Women garden. Now, for those who aren't familiar, Little Women is fiction, but it is largely autobiographical. Right. And so there are so many elements of the book that are true to life. The real girls did have gardens and each year got to choose what would go in them. So these flowers that are labeled as Joe's and Meg's and Beth's and Amy's are very, very likely the actual flowers that Louisa and Anna and Beth and May had in their garden. You can see their personalities. Yes, in them. yes. Joe had no two years alike. <laughs> oh, was, really? Yeah. <laughs> Little Women by Louisa May Alcott. Chapter 10 The garden had to be put in order, and each sister had a quarter of the little plot to do what she liked with. For the girls' tastes differed as much as their characters. Meg's had roses and heliotrope, myrtle and a little orange tree in it. Joe's bed was never alike two seasons, for she was always trying experiments. Beth had old-fashioned fragrant flowers in her garden. Amy had a bower in hers. 
rather small and earwiggy, but very pretty to look at, with honeysuckle and morning glories hanging their colored horns and bells in graceful wreaths all over it, tall white lilies, delicate ferns, and as many brilliant picturesque plants as would consent to blossom there. Oh, and I just love that. It tells you so much about May. She's got these bold <laughs> aspirations. She's jammed as much beauty in it as she can. It's a bit earwiggy, but, you know, she is going for it. Yeah. <laughs> and to me, it really is amazing that the house still stands, mm. especially given yeah. the millions of dollars required to preserve it. Oh, yeah. Um, so let's go inside the house. Hmm. When the Alcotts lived in this house, they were here 20 years. They had moved a great deal. Nowhere had they lived a very long time. And when they moved in, Louisa said, this will be our anchoring place. Mm. If I have my way, we will not move again for 20 years. And she got her wish. <laughs> the house has a kind of magic. It must be said. Mm. We have a lot of amazing things in this house. We really do. Almost everywhere you look. You're looking at original things. As a uh, previous Amy hater, <laughs> when I first visited Orchard House 18, 20 years ago, <laughs> I changed my mind <laughs> and and fell in love with May just walking through the house. Because yes. you say she's everywhere and I didn't know really anything about her in real life. Yeah. Her presence is beautiful. It really is. And I think she's the one sister who doesn't really come across in Little Women. You know, the, the Amy in the book is not <laughs> May in real life, although Amy is an anagram of May. Mm. Mm -hmm. Now, all the other artwork in this house is May's original. So these are watercolors that May did when she was traveling abroad. And just because you're so near the dishes, I'll just point out that those were the uh, dishes that Mrs. Alcott had in her family when she was young. And the M is for her maiden name, May. She was Abigail May. And the May that she names two of her daughters, middle name, Louisa May, and her youngest is Abigail May. But Abigail May decided to go by her middle name. So that's why the youngest is called May. But it's very confusing to people. Yeah. <laughs> there are too many Mays. Yeah. <laughs> So the Alcotts, as a family, were really unique. Bronson Alcott, their father, he was a famous transcendentalist. Mm. He didn't believe in material value. Uh, <laughs> so he, he didn't believe in money. He didn't think that people should concern themselves with everyday material things, you know, like food or right. <laughs> comforts. Right. And so the girls were always working hard to bring in some money mm -hmm. to the family because their father just didn't believe it was something that mattered. So I think what I'll do is bring you into Mr. Olcott's study. So these are the two rooms that were the original house. And May did this rendering and isn't that a beautiful, beautiful likeness of the house and then over here may alcott painted this little motto that mr alcott loved it says the hills are reared and the seas are scooped in vain if learnings alter vanish from the plain he was extraordinarily progressive, too progressive for a lot of people. He was the first to admit a black child to class in Boston, and there were 
abolitionist parents who were upset and said, oh, no, no, we can't have that. They wanted the slaves to be freed, but they didn't want this little Susan Robinson in class with their children and told Mr. Alcott, either she leaves or we're taking our children out. And they were the paying parents. Susan was a charity pupil. And he said, Susan stays. And he kept doing things like this again and again and again, and they kept having to move. I mentioned they moved a lot. And every time they moved, he'd be trying to start something else. It was very difficult. Um, they, they did not do well financially for most of their lives. It was Louisa changed that. She was the one who changed it. And it was because of little women. So they had a really unusual upbringing. Um, no money, but you know, rich in intellectual goods. <laughs> <laughs> they had some pretty famous neighbors. There was Nathaniel Hawthorne, um, oh. There was Ralph Waldo Emerson <laughs> and Henry David Thoreau. Mm. So they're all this circle of transcendentalist writers. <laughs> and so they actually employed Henry David Thoreau as the teacher of the girls. And he would teach them like what we would now call mountain school. It's a <laughs> kind of ragged Thoreau wandering through the woods with the four Alcott girls. And he'd just teach them about whatever they were inspired to learn about. <laughs> and Emerson conveniently did believe in money and had a lot of it. <laughs> and so he was the one who kind of financially supported everybody else when they um, were starving. <laughs> mm. So in many ways, it's a lot like the childhood that you see in Little Women. Mm. You know, they're very creative. Uh, their father encourages them to be playful. They they love to stage plays mm -hmm. and they spend a huge amount of time practicing them and creating the sets and costumes and things like that, just like mm -hmm. in the book. For as secret societies were the fashion, it was thought proper to have one. And as all the girls admired Dickens, they called themselves the Pickwick Club. They had kept this up for a year and met every Saturday evening in the big garret, on which occasions the ceremonies were as follows. Three chairs were arranged in a row before a table on which was a lamp, also four white badges, with a big PC in different colors on each, and the weekly newspaper called the Pickwick Portfolio to which all contributed something, while Joe, who reveled in pens and ink, was the editor. At seven o'clock, the four members ascended to the club room, tied their badges round their heads, and took their seats with great solemnity. Meg, as the eldest, was Samuel Pickwick. Joe, being of a literary turn, was Augustus Snodgrass. Beth, because she was round and rosy, Tracy Tupman, and Amy, who was always trying to do what she couldn't, was Nathaniel Winkle. Pickwick, the president, read the paper, which was filled with original tales, poetry, local news, funny advertisements, and hints in which they good-naturedly reminded each other of their faults and shortcomings. So, they used to do their plays right in the dining room. A curtain across here, the audience here in the parlor, the stage would be there. They could run up the back staircase for costume changes. And here we have all May's originals. 
and another fireplace cover here in the parlor. And that is Moses with the Ten Commandments. So look at the skill now that she's developing. He looks very well done. I'm sure she was sketching from something. You know, she was looking at something, but she did a wonderful job. Now, also something I want to show you, and this is not usually out, but we had it for a specific reason. And fortunately for you, it's still out. It's this beautiful Victorian dress painted with flowers. This was painted by May. They made elaborate costumes. They spent months and months painting and hammering, and May would paint backdrops for them. I mean, she really made tremendous effort to do elaborate things that today we would think, I would think anyway, it's like museum quality or professional stage quality as far as how much effort was being put in. But these flowers were painted on this dress for our costumes. Oh, it's, it's just wonderful. And I just love the way it's all still so perfect. And now we'll go upstairs. I want you to see May's bedchamber. And this is another surprise. Her room just has such a spirit to it. You can really feel her there. Um, and lucky us, there was an object on, this, on display that's not usually on display. Ooh. The costume that Louisa created for Rodrigo, her famous character. No fair! Look at the embroidery. Louisa made these boots too and wrote multiple roles for the boots. But this is what May sketched. This is Louisa in the role of Rodrigo which is the play that's described in the beginning of Little Women. In Little Women, Meg is playing Zara, but this is Anna. And look what they did. They, this is in the dining room that I was just showing you. They, they had a dresser, and then they put a little facade up the balcony, and there's Rodrigo, yeah. and wearing these very boots that you see here. Hmm. And that sketch was done by May, and this is May's bedchamber. Oh, cool. It takes people a long time to learn the difference between talent and genius, especially ambitious young men and women. Amy was learning this distinction through much tribulation. For mistaking enthusiasm for inspiration, she attempted every branch of art with youthful audacity. For a long time there was a lull in the mud pie business, and she devoted herself to the finest pen and ink drawing in which she showed such taste and skill that her graceful handiwork proved both pleasant and profitable. But overstrained eyes caused pen and ink to be laid aside for a bold attempt at poker sketching. While this attack lasted, the family lived in constant fear of a conflagration, for the odor of burning wood pervaded the house at all hours, Smoke issued from attic and shed with alarming frequency. Red-hot pokers lay about promiscuously, and Hannah never went to bed without a pail of water and the dinner bell at her door in case of fire. Raphael's face was found boldly executed on the underside of the molding board and Bacchus on the head of a beer barrel. A chanting cherub adorned the cover of the sugar bucket and attempts to portray Romeo and Juliet supplied kindling for some time. 
May persisted through her experiments and through her failures. And that's what I mm. admire so much about her. And you can see evidence of that all around in the house. Wow. This is Mrs. Alcott's breadboard. And on this back side of it, they allowed May to do something that May would call pyrography. She would take the poker, the fireplace poker, and then she'd burn the design and just keep going back and forth. But I love the fact that we can see this head of Raphael that May Alcott burned into the back of Mrs. Alcott's board. And many people would have said, this is an old house. The biggest fear they ever had, all of these homeowners had, was fire. And yet she, they allowed her to do it. Sure, take my breadboard. Yeah. <laughs> Go ahead. We don't mind. We're not worried about fire. It's fine. <laughs> Other models failing her for a time, she undertook to cast her own pretty foot. This is a model of May's own foot. Oh my gosh. This is a model of May's hand. And the, the hand below is the hand of a little friend. And you may recall in Little Women, Amy, and this had really been done by May, was trying to make a plaster mold and she didn't know how to do it. And so she stuck her foot in a bucket of plaster. And then when it dried, she had a bucket on her foot. <laughs> and the family were one day alarmed by an unearthly bumping and screaming and running to the rescue, found the young enthusiast hopping wildly about the shed with her foot held fast in a pan full of plaster, which had hardened with unexpected rapidity. For Joe was so overcome with laughter while she excavated that her knife went too far, cut the poor foot, and left a lasting memorial of one artistic attempt, at least. These are her paints. And Amy fell to painting with undiminished ardor. An artist friend fitted her out with his cast-off palettes, brushes, and colors, and she daubed away producing pastoral and marine views such as were never seen on land or sea. But I think it's it's so important to understand how hard May worked. People don't get that from little women. They just think, oh, she was a little flippity pigeon, you know. Yeah, yeah. She was very personable. People enjoyed her tremendously. She was the life of the party kind of a person. Mm -hmm. One of her friends said about May Alcott that her beautiful energy and enthusiasm was the same whether she was working hard on a painting or we have to paint part of the house or we're going to get a picnic up and go and take a trip on the Concord River. I mean, she just had energy and joy. And I think that that doesn't fully come through in Little Women. But some of the cute, funny aspects of Amy were absolutely there when May was a little girl, but she grew up and we don't really fully see that in Little Women. I think she was absolutely remarkable. For she had resolved to be an attractive and accomplished woman, even if she never became a great artist. For she was one of those happily created beings who please without effort, make friends everywhere, and take life so gracefully and easily that less fortunate souls are tempted to believe that such are born under a lucky star. Everybody liked her, for among her good gifts was tact, 
she had an instinctive sense of what was pleasing and proper, always said the right thing to the right person, did just what suited the time and place, and was so self-possessed that her sisters used to say, if Amy went to court without any rehearsal beforehand, she'd know exactly what to do. And this is May's bedchamber. Right away, you can, when you walk in, you feel how different it is. She drew all over in this room to decorate it. It had a low ceiling. Mr. Alcott vaulted the ceiling because he wanted to make the room light and airy and gave her permission to draw on the walls and decorate her room this way. So if you look everywhere, you look underneath and around the windows. And this was Needlepoint that made it as a young, young girl. Sampler, yeah. It's just incredible that we have this. And then look at the back of that door. I'll just let you close the door. That's another one that I love. May was very influenced by Flaxman's drawings. If you look up Flaxman, you'll see the influence. But it is quite remarkable. I'm going to turn these lights out as we go as well. Yes, yes. She made, she made that bag. May Alcott, yes. Maybe you're looking for experiences for your kids this holiday season instead of stuff. Girls Can Crate delivers a monthly package to your kids that teaches them about a real woman who changed the world. Every crate features an inspiring woman and her own unique story of why she's awesome, a 28-page activity book, plus everything you would need to complete two to three hands-on STEAM activities, and more. Girls Can Crate teaches girls that they can be and do anything. It really is inspiring, exciting, and just the thing to get you through the rest of these crazy quarantine times. And they would make an amazing gift. Go to girlscancrate.com and use the code HERNAME, all one word, to get 20% off your first month's crate on any subscription that you order. Try it out now. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Charcoal portraits came next, and the entire family hung in a row, looking as wild and crocky as if just evoked from a coal bin. Softened into crayon sketches, they did better, for the likenesses were good, and Amy's hair, Joe's nose, and Meg's mouth, and Laurie's eyes were pronounced wonderfully fine. A return to clay and plaster followed and ghostly casts of her acquaintances haunted corners of the house or tumbled off closet shells onto people's heads. Children were enticed in as models till their incoherent accounts of her mysterious doings caused Miss Amy to be regarded in the light of a young ogress. After this, Amy subsided till a mania for sketching from nature set her to haunting river, field, and wood. For picturesque studies, and sighing for ruins to copy. She caught endless colds sitting on damp grass, 
to book a delicious bit, composed of stone, a stump, one mushroom, or a heavenly mass of clouds that looked like a choice display of feather beds when done. She sacrificed her complexion, floating on the river in the midsummer sun, to study light and shade, and got a wrinkle over her nose trying after points of sight, or whatever the squint and string performance is called. May strikes me as someone who was just completely undeterred by failure, and she was ready to keep working and keep working. She just set mm. her sights on the goal that she wanted, and she was never going to settle. Right. And as Little Women says, she's aiming for not just talent, but genius mm. and the courage it takes to aim that high and to not give up. I really admire. If genius is eternal patience, as Michelangelo affirms, Amy had some claim to the divine attribute, for she persevered in spite of all obstacles, failures, and discouragements, firmly believing that in time she should do something worthy to be called high art. Emerson, you know, their neighbor, he wrote a famous essay on courage, which she must have read. Mm. And here's one of the famous lines from it, which I think applies to her so well. Hmm. Whatever you do, you need courage. Whatever course you decide upon, there is always someone to tell you you were wrong. There are always difficulties arising that tempt you to believe your critics are right. To map out a course of action and follow it to an end requires <laughs> the same courage that a soldier needs. Hmm. Ah, I love that. Yeah, because I think when we have the movies of the people who are great they're either just brilliant from the beginning or we see like a 30 second montage of oh they tried once and it didn't work but the next time when really becoming great at something means being really bad at something for a long 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 time yes and getting better means continually being bad at the next level of thing right you can't just master it and go whoa done you now you launch into the next thing that you have to be terrible at yes. and it's demoralizing <laughs> i it's know hard <laughs> it's so tempting to go i'll be pretty good at this yes good enough that's what i do i don't have this skill i don't have this courage all of the girls and mrs alcott were helping bronson to bring money in for the family they all worked and may would do paintings like this this is a little um it's actually wood but she painted it to look like a piece of slate these were very popular and she could sell them quickly. She called them her pot boilers because like a writer who would write something fast just to get some money, she could paint these fast and get some money. So she was always painting. She had art students. She was teaching here in Concord. And she was known for being not only a very good teacher and a very good artist, but for being kind and generous. Fast forward a few years. Louisa and May, they are working independently, and they are what we would call confirmed spinsters. <laughs> Unmarried, past marriageable age, but confident in that, like embracing their independent nature. And they, mm. they both say that marriage is a kind of trap. Mm. Louisa, so Louisa was in Boston while writing, and, and she, right. on Valentine's Day, 1868, she wrote a article for Boston Magazine called Happy Women, and in it she said, 
that <laughs> for many women, quote, liberty is a better husband than love to many of us. <laughs> Both May and Louisa were known for embracing the idea that, well, this line from Little Women, marriage halves one's rights and doubles one's <laughs> duties. <laughs> Live alone and like it. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so they are happy spinsters, free. And then Louisa kind of reluctantly publishes a book about their childhood called Little Women and becomes hugely famous. She asked May to illustrate it. Hmm. And this very first illustrator was May. <laughs> oh, but, of course. Um, she only did four sketches in the publisher and didn't like them. No one really liked them. So. Oh. But she was young and hadn't had all of the training mm -hmm. yet. I mean, it's just, it's, it's such a good reminder uh, that she was a developing artist and working hard. She didn't just suddenly spring up doing this amazing art. And her work really did become amazing. Can you imagine? <laughs> your sister is immediately celebrated as a literary genius, and yet your illustrations for her book condemned as terrible. Oh, <laughs> I, nightmare. I know, it's so tragic. But Aww. she didn't give up. She didn't quit. She went on to become an art teacher. She opened a studio in Concord. And the next year, she herself published mm. a book called Concord Sketches, a collection of her drawings in Concord. She is not about to be discouraged by this kind of public failure. Mm. Her art studio, where she taught lessons in Concord, it's still there in the house. Mm. I have to get some light on. Bronson built this art studio for May. And there's a door, you see, so she could have art students come in there. She would have people pose and sketch them on the walls. You can see the silhouettes on the walls. They're super faint. They had to use a special scanner hmm. to identify them. But you can see the silhouettes of all of her visitors <gasps> that she put on the walls. Oh. Her students were local kids. One of them was this shy little boy named Daniel Chester French who came hmm. to learn to sculpt because it just was deep in his soul. He was carving vegetables and bits of gypsum because he just liked doing it. And people thought he was pretty darn good. But so they said, why don't you get some clay? Go, go see May Alcott. She took him under her wing. She <laughs> gave him his first tools. You know, she knows what it's like to be a poverty-stricken artist. Awesome. Now, Daniel Chester French was 15 years younger than May. And I think he really kind of had a crush on her. He talks in, in a little piece that he wrote about how she came one day to see him at his home and she was riding a horse and she just looked absolutely gorgeous and how amazing she was as, as a person. But being a mm. teacher, a local teacher, that wasn't the dream. The dream was to be an artistic genius. Her dream was to go to Europe and really study. And it was Louisa May mm. who made that possible for her. She funded May's education, not just in Boston, but also three trips abroad to Europe mm. to study with the greats. Her That's sister awesome. made it happen while her sister stayed home. Mm. And this is a portrait of May Alcott 
which was done by her roommate Rose Peckham when the two of them were studying art together in Paris. Now, Mrs. Olcott was very, very ill by 1877, and this painting was done just prior to Mrs. Olcott's death, and it arrived in time for Mrs. Olcott to see it. She had been missing her darling little youngest daughter, but was also happy that May was getting the training she wanted, and, and it was a wonderful sort of bittersweet experience. But when Mrs. Alcott saw this painting, she thought, well, it looked quite wonderful. Look how beautiful it is, except for the hat. She said, that's a little too much Paris. I think May would look better in a nice simple blue snood. <laughs> but she didn't say it in an upset way. She just made that comment as mothers sometimes will do. <laughs> now, while she's in Europe, she's challenging herself so much. Mm. She is great at still life, but she is also learning anatomy. She is trying portraits. She's trying landscapes. She's studying the great masters and copying them. And she actually first gained attention as a copyist. She she was the greatest copyist of Turner. Mm. You know William Turner, the famous landscape artist who paints like these stormy seas. Now above the, the piano here, we have copies of Joseph Turner's paintings. And May was so good as an artist, she, she was training at this point in England, that she was hired to copy Turner paintings. We have a lot of Turners either in this house or in some cases still owned by descendants of May Alcott. And John Ruskin, who was a major critic and very respected, said that May Alcott was the best Turner copyist he had seen. So she really had high praise. So now she's the best copyist of the great masters. I feel like she's mm. so close. She's almost there. She's almost a great artist in her own right. Mm. And she sends art back to Louisa. Now May painted this wonderful owl. And again, John Ruskin looked at the pages of a book there and said they were the best he had seen. May Alcott's pages of a book. Really? And they are wonderful. They are. There's a great story about the owl. May is in Paris at this time, and she goes into a junk shop. And a friend of hers had been there recently, the same shop, and had bought some sort of a bird. I don't think it was an owl and had paid 15 francs for it. So May was now going to see what she could find. She sees this owl, she thinks he's really great. And she says to the owner, how much? She's thinking he's gonna say 15 francs. He says, two francs. And May is so proud of herself because immediately she says, I'll give you one and a half. <laughs> and she was as proud of her quick response and bargaining power as she was of the wonderful owl. And he really is wonderful. She wrote a letter home to Louisa before she did that painting. And she sketched the owl in the margin of the letter and she said to Louisa, he reminds me of you. I'm gonna put him in a painting one day. And here it is. We actually have a description of her character from her father, Bronson Alcott, mm. who wrote that May's temperament was elastic susceptible. She had a lively fancy, a clear understanding. Independence was her marked trait. 
she held her fortunes in her hands. And failure was a word unknown in her vocabulary of effort. Hmm. Her effort finally paid off in 1877. This still life that she entered in the Paris Salon in 1877 was accepted. It was the event in Paris. I sort of personally liken it to the way people are about the Super Bowl in this country. People are excited about it. They have their own little individual parties, even if they're not going to travel anywhere. This is how Parisians felt about the Salon opening. Now, prior to opening, they would have maybe 8,000 entries, and mostly they were male and European. Here you have a female foreigner. Out of the 8,000, they would accept 2,000 for the exhibit. So that was a huge honor. And May was beside herself with excitement when this was accepted in this salon. And then here it hangs. We're very fortunate to have it. She's arrived. Yay! We did it. But then that same year, her mother died. She couldn't afford to go home. But um, there was a friend at the boarding house who helped her through it. Hmm. It was one of those very dreary time periods in London, foggy, rainy, very depressing weather. And here she had the sad, sad news that her mother had died. He was boarding in the same boarding house, Ernest Neericker. He was 15 years younger than me. Oh, she kept attracting these younger men. <laughs> and they, he played the violin, and he would listen. He was sensitive. He was just very, very supportive. And they were obviously falling in love when it was almost like, I think it was a very mutual thing. Wait a minute, we could just get married. And they did. It was very romantic and very whirlwind. They just went to City Hall in London. She wore this, she described this very fashionable brown dress, <laughs> not a veil and a wedding dress at all. And she wrote, tongues might start wagging and conquered because he's 15 years younger and it was a whirlwind romance and oh my goodness, you know. But she said, if they could know, she had never been so happy. Louisa, we know, wrote in her diary an entry about May's wedding. And you can see in it a struggle, hmm. support and love, but also a little bit of pain that you can see there. She says, May is old enough to choose for herself and seems hmm. so happy in the new relation that we have nothing to say against it. Sent her a thousand dollars as a gift Whoa. and all good wishes for the new life. Oh. So much money back then. Wow, yeah. But then she also says in that same entry how different our lives are just now. I, so lonely, sad, and sick. Aww. She, so happy, well, and blessed. She always had the cream of things and deserved it. My time is yet to come somewhere else when I'm ready for it. Hmm. May is married. 
she sets up a perfect scene of domestic happiness. They live outside of Paris together. Mm. And May insists that even though she's getting married, she's not going to give up her art. She's not just going to become domestic. She's going to continue to be an independent, empowered woman. Mm. She's going to keep pursuing her art. She's going to have it all. And so you can see that struggle with Louisa. Like, she's so supportive of her, but also... Mm feels she feels the pain of her own lack of happiness Aww. and it's in this year that may paints her masterpiece hmm. a portrait of a slave woman lani gress when you look at that face and think about what her development was i mean this was spectacular wow. because she captures in that face it was showing great respect for a woman honoring that this was a human being who should not have been enslaved. The faces of the early sketches that she did for Little Women are nothing like this. <laughs> so the training really paid off. You see that painting and you go, yes, she has she did arrived. It. She did it. <laughs> she became this. this. Yes, exactly. It's really a moment of glory. <laughs> But she's not done. <laughs> That's not the end. That same year she paints her masterpiece, she also published a book. Mm. And the book is so telling, I think. It gives us such a great insight into her character. The book is called Studying Art Abroad and How to Do It Cheaply. Mm. <laughs> and in that, I just see... I see May Alcott saying, I am so lucky. How did I get here? How did I make mm. the wildest dreams actually mm. come true? And how can I help other people to do oh, it? She is you. You, <laughs> yes. you teach that seminar. I do. I, do. I mean, I believe hard in study abroad and that everybody yeah. can and should do it. I love seeing May Alcott doing this looking behind her and saying who else wants to live the dream and how can yeah. i help them i'm going to write a book with all my tips all the things i've discovered mm. <sighs> so everything is perfect she even writes home to louisa mm. and says there is not a cloud as big as your hand in my sky ah mm. wonderful there's a baby on the way Hmm. Even. And when Louisa hears the news, she has another journal entry that is kind of heart-wrenching. Hmm. She sits happily, sewing baby clothes in Paris. I enjoyed fitting out a box of dainty things to send her. Even lonely old spinsters take an interest in babies. Oh. <laughs> wow. But this is a risky pregnancy. She's 38. Uh-oh, you promised wholesome. I promised wholesome. I did not promise you wouldn't cry. <laughs> oh, man. <sighs> About a year after they were married, she gave birth to Louisa May Niriker. She named her after her sister, Louisa. This darling little girl and she had said to Ernest, because so many women lost their lives in childbirth, if anything happened to her, would he agree, because she wanted to reconnect with her family and couldn't, would he agree that the baby could be raised by Louisa? And he agreed. 
Of course he thought nothing was going to happen, but when the baby was just a little over six weeks old, May died. Hmm. Jan started crying, and oh. so we started crying. <laughs> and I'm not now crying about crying. <laughs> no. Oh. It's so sad. Oh. She died. We don't know the cause. Childbed mm. fever, perhaps. Some people think maybe it was mm. um, meningitis. We don't oh. know. All right, we got to stop doing episodes about people who die in or near childbirth. I know. This is not good. <laughs> it's a little too close to home. It's us, yeah. yeah. It, that was so close to being us. Exactly. Us in a different century. We both would have died. <sighs> she left the baby to Louisa. <laughs> and so little Louisa May Nieriker was brought over by Ernest's sister and a nursemaid that they sent from America. Here, May had left out of a certain pier in Boston, and Louisa stood at the same pier watching this boat come in, and here's this little baby. And when she saw, when Louisa saw Lulu, which is what they called her, she was speechless. She just, she just, she just put her arms out and said, Lulu. We have another couple of journal entries from Louisa from this time period when she first heard that her sister left her her baby. Wow. She wrote, she wished me to have her baby and her pictures, a very precious legacy, mm -hmm. rich payment for the little I could do for her. I see now why I lived. <laughs> And then the next day, her journal says, mm -hmm. of all the trials in my life, I never felt any so keenly as this. She was just under a year old when, when she arrived. She was maybe nine months old and had her first birthday with her new family. So it was very meaningful to all of them, this little girl. And very poignant story, which we all feel sad that May couldn't have lived because she was so happy and you just wanted that happiness to go on. But they all doted on her and Bronson was still alive and he was by all counts a wonderful grandfather to this little girl. They, she just was adored, completely adored. And so the house is kind of full again. Hmm. Anna, the oldest hmm. sister, her husband has died and so she and her two boys are living back in the house. It is kind of a big full victorian house mm. again but with the pain of loss and one year after uh may died we have a journal entry from mm. louisa may and it's just one sentence mm. it says my grief meets me when i come home and the house is full of ghosts mm. and it kind of still is it really has such a sense of the family that lived there. And May is everywhere in that house. And she is a, a force. She is a spirit. The beauty of the house is because of her. Who knows what she could have become 
She was a genius in her own right. You know, she was praised by the greatest art critics of the time. Mm. But here's a telling anecdote that just brings to life the beauty of her character. You remember that young boy, the shy kid that she taught art lessons to all those years before? Daniel Chester French. Mm, yeah. yeah. He's going to go on to become a great sculptor, famous. Mm. First, they commission him to cast the Minuteman statue in Concord that's there at the Old North Bridge oh. still today. Wow. He's going to go on to incredible commissions. Uh, the great final commission was the Lincoln Memorial. What? <laughs> what? I knew I knew that name. <laughs> and he is probably the preeminent sculptor of America. And when he was carving that seated Lincoln, he knew this was probably his last big commissioned work. He made a point to use May's art tool in, in honor of her. It really lets you know something magnificent, I think, about May Alcott. She was helping people all her life but that's the one that probably, the Daniel Chester French connection is probably the connection that stands out the most as being a big surprise to people. Wow. I just love her. Wow. You know, Emerson famously said, it's not length of life, but depth of life. He has not learned the lesson of life who does not every day surmount a fear. So, that kind of gives you a lot about May. And Amy smiled without bitterness, for she possessed a happy temper and hopeful spirit. Without stopping to sigh for what she had not, she skillfully made the best of what she had. I know that I can carry it out perfectly well if you and the girls will help a little. And having made up her mind what to do, she proceeded to do it in spite of all obstacles. If you want to learn more about May Alcott, check out our website, whatsyournamepodcast.com. Very special thanks to Jan Turnquist at Orchard House Museum. They remain closed for the pandemic, but their online shop is up and running, and they have Facebook Live events every Sunday where you get to see Jan Turnquist show you special artifacts all around the house. They also have a virtual tour on their website, so check it out. Music for this episode was provided by Wayne Jones, Late Night Feeler, Esther Abrami, Aaron Kenny, and Sir Cubworth. Our theme song was composed by Daniel Foster Smith. You can follow us on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook, where we post all kinds of additional content each week. Olivia has also created a special cross-stitch pattern of the Alcott sisters, which you can find on our website, instant download, whatsernamepodcast.com. Thanks for donating. Thanks for listening. There's so much more. If we had a week yeah. and sleeping bags here, I could just keep going. So yes, I'll, please. I'll be, Let's uh, do it. Let's arrange I'll be, that. You know, skipping <laughs>
Join us in Mexico as we walk in the footsteps of Zazalha, learn traditional Mayan cooking, tour Mayan ruins, snorkel with sea turtles, and so many more off-the-beaten-track adventures with our wonderful little band of kindred spirits. Spots are going fast, so sign up now on our website at whatsyournamepodcast.com. We can't wait to see you there. <laughs>